sorry, Ezra chapter 7. Open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. We're not in 6, we're in 7. We did 6 last two weeks. 7. Ezra chapter 7. This marks the position of Ezra in which um, there's a gap between 6 and 7. And in this gap, you have the book of Esther that takes place. In the book of Esther, um, if you've never read it, great book, go read it. It's enjoyable and uh, uh, very inspiring. In the book of Esther, you have behind the scenes of the book of Ezra, uh, the protection of God for his people (coughs) over... uh, over and above the attack against his people by Haman and by the Agagites. So, we come to Ezra chapter 7, and let's just begin by reading uh, chapter 7. We're going to read the whole thing, but we're going to focus primarily on the first 10 verses this morning. We'll be jumping through the other section as well, but let's begin by reading chapter 7. All, all the way through. <clears throat> now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, son of Ahitab, son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Z- <clears throat> Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given him. And the king granted him all that he had asked for, the hand of the Lord His God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the month, he began to go up to Babylonia Go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in the matters of the commandment of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of, he- of heaven. Peace. And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel, their priests or Levites in my kingdom, who freely offers to go to Jerusalem, may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, 
and also to carry the silver and the gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to God, the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and the gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With his money, with this money then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs, and their grain offerings, and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem, whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. This vessel, the vessels that have been given to you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem and whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasures in the province of beyond the river. Whatever Ezra, the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath burn against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of the house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, Appoint magistrates and judges who may be judges over all the people in the province beyond the river. All such as knows the law of your God and those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God, the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who puts such things into this, puts such things as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselor and before all kings' mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So as we approach this text, uh, let's remember a couple things. One, there's been a 60-year gap. So the people have been sacrificing and worshiping and following through with the worship that was set and prepared in chapter 6. They've been doing it for 60 years. Well, really 58, but close enough to 60 years. They've been doing this for quite some time. And... Ezra has not been in the story until now. Ezra shows up now. Remember, chapter 6 ends with 
the celebration of Passover. And it's critical to understand that because that Passover feast for us is a picture of Jesus Christ, our salvation. So Ezra 6, the temple is rebuilt. The sacrifices have been restarted. The sacrifices have been restarted and the adversaries have been answered. Mostly. Mostly answered. They still nag at the people of God for eternity. Just all the way until Jesus returns. There's always going to be nagging adversaries to the people of God. You're going to have adversaries that are around us who are going to pester and bother the people of God. And we have two models of that in this uh, chapter. And Tatsunai and Ezra chapter 6 and all his cohort, his buddies and fellow, uh, fellow leaders. And then you've got Haman in the book of Esther. Uh, who is nagging adversarial towards the work and the people of God. So, now enters Ezra. The book is named after this guy. He's, uh, most of us believe he's the one that wrote it down, so that's why it's named after him. But Ezra, the scribe, shows up on the scene in chapter 7. And he's going to come in and lead the people back to the Word of God. He's going to read the law of God to the people. And that's what his, his primary function is going to be as he comes. So who is Ezra? That's what we want to look at this morning. Who is Ezra? And first, Ezra is a man for the hour. He's a man for the hour. There's this 60 year gap in chapter 6 through 7 where Esther's story has taken place and the people of Israel have unbeknownst to them, unbeknownst to them, they have been saved by a queen who is far off. They have been spared death by a queen, a monarch who is far off, appealing to the king. Appealing to the king. So they have been saved by Esther who has appealed to the king and they don't know it. They don't know that that's what's happened. They don't understand what has happened with, with Haman and Mordecai. They don't understand. They don't know. They haven't heard. Ezra shows up with this in the background. With this in the background. With this Esther story in the background. And the king has been influenced by Ezra. So the people of Jerusalem wouldn't have even heard or realized that there was a crisis averted. The people who were there wouldn't have even known that there was a crisis averted. That they almost suffered mass uh, mass attack that Haman was planning on attacking and blotting out all of the Jews. And instead, the Jews get preserved by the work of God in Esther. And, I would argue, by the work of God in the people like Ezra. If you'll notice the way the king talked about Ezra, you'll notice the way he talked about him. You're, you're the one who carries in your hand, the word of God. You're the one who is uh, a scribe over the commandments of the word of the God of heaven. He, this king knew Ezra's faithful and fealty to the law. That Ezra understood the law and the king understood this. So Ezra is a man for this hour. The king needs to be influenced in order for the people to get the word of God, in order for the people to be established and strengthened. Again, Ezra is a man for the hour. 
with all this stuff playing in the background, he's the right guy to go and teach the people the law of God. Now, just a side note. No matter how good the religious system is, no matter how strong the temple, the building, the people, the activities, the programs, no matter how uh, capable the leaders are, if the Word of God is not proclaimed, studied, taught, and lived out, then it is worthless. Then all the religious systems of the world fall apart. No matter how quality and skilled the leaders are at administration and organization and and programs, no matter how functional the programs are, no matter how many needs are met, if the Word of God is not proclaimed, then we have a lazy and weak religion that changes nothing in the heart of man, but creates clubs and groups of people who are just wasting their life. But if the Word of God is proclaimed, if the Word of God is lived out, if the Word of God fills our hearts as people, then the programming and activities are empowered. Then the worship is empowered. Then the people of God begin to become the people of God. And what we have here in this 60-year gap is 60 years of a people who are going through religious motions. And the Word of God has been proclaimed, and they had this 60-year prior triumph of reestablishing the voice of the people in worship of God in the Passover feast with Haggai and Zechariah standing there proclaiming the Word of God. But for 60 years, there's been this odd, silent complacency. And so we come to Ezra 7, and Ezra, the scribe who's bringing the Word of God to the people of God, shows up, and that's why this is exciting. Because it's about to bring the Word of God into the heart of the people of God. And what we find in the rest of Ezra and Nehemiah is these people desperately need the Word of God. They have already messed up their lives by syncretism, by engaging with cultural things, by intermarrying with other religious groups, by uh, oppressing and ignoring the poor already. Already they're doing this. Already they've begun to fall back into the habits of their forefathers that led them into exile in the first place. Already they have done this. And one of the key points that we can get before we ever move any further in this text is to see that without the constant refreshment of the Word of God, the people will always drift into bad things. Without the constant refreshment of the Word of God, indeed, we will drift into bad things. We will drift into sin in the constant... If we are not constantly refreshed by the Word of God. So Ezra is a man for the hour. The people have become uh, somewhat complacent. They've begun to synchronize again. He's a man for the hour. He is also Aaron's son. We saw that here with this list of names in verses 1 through 5. And I want you to notice some of the names. Just take a glance at some of those names. Those are some all-stars. 
in the priesthood. These guys are all-stars. They're, they're really, really famous names. Aaron is the chief of the Levites. Just so that you get the, uh, the timeline right, Aaron comes after Levi. Levi is in Genesis. Aaron is a descendant of Levi. Aaron and Moses descended from Levi. So you've got Aaron exalted here. He doesn't take his lineage back to Levi, and there's a reason for that. He doesn't take his lineage back to Levi because Levi did not go into a temple. Levi did not go into a tabernacle. He did not go into a religious position. Rather, Levi was the beginning, the first priest, the first one set up. Aaron becomes the chief priest in the book of Exodus. When Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they come out and they lead the people out of slavery into the wilderness and they begin to wander in the wilderness, Aaron is the high priest. He's the one with the staff that buds. He's the one who has all the miraculous things happening around him. He's the one who leads the people in worship in the tabernacle. He is the chief priest. So Ezra goes, I'm from that one. I'm from Aaron. I've got a pedigree. He's, got, he's from Aaron. He's more than just a Levite. He's more than just a Levite. He's from the chief priest. Aaron is identified here as chief priest in Levi, uh, Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10. He is the chief over his brothers. In Numbers chapter 3, verse 32, Eliezer, who's also mentioned here, Eliezer is the chief over chiefs. He's the chief over chiefs. In Joshua 22, verse 30 through 34, Phineas brings the word of God back to the people of God. He's the one who brings the word of God back to the people of God, which is always weird to hear. When you hear in the Old Testament, Israel has somehow lost the word of God or had had to have the word brought back to them, it should unsettle you a little bit, considering that the only job of the king of Israel was to make a copy of the law and read it out loud. That's literally what's prescribed as his job. Every year he's supposed to take the law, he's supposed to make a copy of it, and he's supposed to read it out loud to the people. That's the job of the king of Israel. And the fact that we have that happen only once or twice and throughout the Old Testament is tragic. And the fact that we have priests who are constantly having to bring back the Word of God or bring out the Word of God is a tragic indictment on the fealty of people. In Second Chronicles chapter 19, verse 11, Amariah, who's mentioned here, governs the people in matters pertaining to the Lord. So he is the one who people came to to understand what the religious requirements for life were. And not only that, but he was the governor of the people. He was the one who was governing these things and teaching these things and making sure that things were done well. Chief priests administered the law and the word of God. They administered the law and the word of God. So when we talk about Ezra being chief among the priests or coming from Aaron, the chief priest, one of the things we need to grasp is that he is coming as one who administers the word of God to the people of God. He was the one who administers the word of God to the people of God. Now, Ezra is a type for Christ. We need to take a quick aside here and recognize 
that Ezra is not a type for pastor. I listen to a lot of sermons when I prepare these things. And one of the common themes that pastors like to do is put themselves in the place of the hero of the story. I am not your hero. Jesus is your only hero. I am not the arbiter of what is true and what is false. The scripture does that perfectly well without me. does not need me to do it for it. I am a fellow member, a fellow brother in the church, and you are welcome to challenge me and call me on whatever. Just be ready, because I'm going to hold the word of God, and I'm going to fight back. And it'll be a great and blessed boxing match in which we will both come out stronger. But we are together the body of Christ. Ezra is a type for Christ, not a type for pastor. Ezra is a type for Christ, not a type for pastor. With that in mind, I want you to look right past me. I want you to look right past me in this and see Jesus and see what he does. Ezra comes in this passage in chapter 7 and intentionally gives us a picture of who Christ is to us. Albeit, in the rest of the book, we're going to see that it's an inadequate picture, as much of the Old Testament does to us when it shows us a picture for Christ, then it shows us the flaw of the man who's the picture. So that we would see the perfection of Jesus. Because where Ezra is flawed, Jesus is perfect. Where Ezra lacks, Jesus is great. Where we are weak, he is strong. Indeed, Ezra is a type for Christ in this he is a chief he is from the chief priest he is he administers the word of god ezra is a scribe did you notice there that it says of him he is skilled in the law says in there in verse six he is a scribe skilled in the law of moses that god had given him down in verse 10 ezra set his heart to study the law of the lord and to teach its rules and statutes Artaxerxes calls him a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Then over again in uh, verse 25, it says the wisdom of God is in your hand. He holds the law in his hand. He knows the word of God. He knows the law of God. He is a skilled uh, scribe who keeps the law of God. He was skilled in the law in verse 6. He had a heart set on the word of God in verse 10. He lived out the law also in verse 10. You see that there where it says, uh, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statute, his statutes and rules in Israel. So he had studied the law. He knew the law. It was in him. He lived the law. He was a man who you could look at and see the embodiment of the law of God. You could see this man loved the word of God. He taught the word. Now, just for a moment, think about that idea that he did the law, that he does the law. He's the one who, who God put in his heart to do it. This would be akin to James's urging, do not be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. Do not be those who just give lip service to God, but rather live the law of God. Live the love and the word of God. That 
our lives are testimonies to Jesus because of how we live and how we love. They will know you by your love. No one has ever seen God except when we love one another, He's manifest among us. We have this beautiful picture of somebody who lives out faith. If you live out faith, then you will be showing the law of God to those around you. Be imitators of Christ as I, as, as I do in 1 Corinthians 11. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Right? We are to be imitators of this. We are to live out the love of Jesus. We are to be those who preach the word but also live the word. You see, all the knowledge and exegetical skill that a person has means absolutely nothing if they don't have a holy life to go with it. All the exegetical skill and brilliance means absolutely nothing if they don't have a holy life to go with it. The most godly men to imitate and follow, the most godly women to imitate and follow are those who live a holy lifestyle founded in the love of Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter how great their exegesis is. Doesn't matter how well they can handle things. What matters is who they are. Does their life show the love and beauty and grace of Jesus Christ? Does their life show that? That's the ones that we want to be like. Ezra is this type of scribe. Jesus does all these things and more. So, he's a man for the hour, he's Aaron's son, and he's a scribe. As a scribe, he's skilled in the law. We talked about these things. He's skilled in the law. He's got a heart formed in God's word. He lived out the law, and he taught the law. So, Ezra as a scribe, as a scribe, is a type for Jesus. Jesus embodies the word of God. He is the perfect embodiment of the word of God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says he is the word of God. And then again in chapter 14, it repeats that, that he is the word of God itself. Jesus is the word of God. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was God. The word was God. If you ever run across a Jehovah's Witness, there's a predicate nominative thing going on there. Um, just come ask me about it, and I'll gladly point you to why the grammar does say that he is the word of the God. Like, that's a perfectly fine thing to say. Um, that's a side note for you. Just file it away. Put it in the back of your brain. And John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John 1 verse 14, Jesus is the embodiment of the word of God. He is the word of God itself. He is perfect. Jesus is perfect. He's the perfect lamb slain for us for salvation's sake. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus lived a perfect life on this earth. Facing every form of temptation that you could imagine. Greater than your own. The spiritual ramifications of the temptations that are landed on Jesus are much greater than the spiritual ramifications of the temptations that land on you. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us, who was tempted in every way, and yet was without sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 
15. And then there's these other verses underneath there that I put under there just for your edification. They say the same thing. He is the perfect lamb of God. He's perfect and without sin. So Jesus embodies the word of God. He is perfect. And then he taught that which accords to God's will. Jesus himself in John chapter 12, verse 49 says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. Also, these verses at the bottom say the same thing. Jesus spoke the word of God, which is the law of God, is part of that word. So he speaks the word of God as God has commanded, as God has given. He does not speak of his own accord, but he speaks according to the word of God. Like Ezra the scribe, who's teaching the word, Jesus embodies the word, he's perfect in it, and he speaks the word of God to others. So Ezra, a man for the hour, he's Aaron's son, and he's a scribe. Fourth, he has the hand of God on him. He has the hand of God on him. The Lord has given him the word and favor in verse 6. In verse 6 it says this, it says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia... He, I love, by the way, just side note, the Bible has some great little lines in it. This is one of them. This Ezra. This Ezra. The, the point being, not the other Ezras that you might have heard of. This one. The one from the chief priest. This is a specific Ezra. The one from Aaron's line. This Ezra went up from Babylonia, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord God had given him... and. <clears throat> Uh, I'm sorry, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given and the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord was of God, the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So Ezra is given favor there. The king grants all that he asked because he's given favor because the hand of the Lord is on him. The hand of the Lord is on him. So he's given favor in verse 6. The hand of God is on him and mentioned again in verse 6, 9, and 28. But notice the, the growth of this statement. One in verse 6, the hand of the Lord is given, on, is given him and he's got favor. And verse, uh, then again in verse 20, in verse 9, it says here, For on the first day of the month in Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. All of a sudden, the hand is not just the hand of God giving favor to the king, but a good hand, a right hand, a good hand for him. The good hand of God was on him, of his God was on him. And then again, in verse 28, it says here uh, that he's got steadfast love in the end of verse 28. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. The hand gave him courage to do what he needed to do. There's a progression. There's the hand first gives him favor with the king. Then the hand is good and it is right and he delivers the word of God. And then in verse 28, the hand gives him courage to do what is right. Being in the hand of God or having the hand of God on you gives you the strength to accomplish the purpose of God. The hand of God is on him. Third, Jesus casts out demons by the hand or the finger of God. This is just a connection that we can see in the New Testament. In Luke, there's, a, there's this word, finger. 
referring to the divine finger of God. It's used twice in the scripture. Two notable places. One in John chapter 8 and one in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is discussing with the, uh, with the Pharisees and he argues that he doesn't cast out demons by the hand of Satan, but by the finger of God. He doesn't cast out demons by the hand of Satan. If he cast them out by that way, he would be, uh, there'd be a house divided among itself. But he is casting out demons by the finger of the hand of God. Same phrase is used in John chapter 8, verse 20. So here's Luke eleven twenty. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The same words used in John chapter 8 when Jesus bends down to write on the dirt. In John chapter 8, when the adulterous woman is thrown before Jesus, you all know the story. She's, drawn, she's dragged to him, thrown at his feet, and he is, uh, there's this posture thing where he's standing, sitting, standing, sitting, and the, the scripture is very intentional to kind of tell you that because what that story is communicating is Jesus bending down to the dirt with the hand of God to write in the dirt. This is a common thing that we see in the Gospel of John, the image of recreating the heart of people. Of Jesus, God divinely bending down to the dirt in the Old Testament, Adam, the ground, and drawing in it is the, the picture of him remaking the heart of all the people who are standing around. That's why he says to the woman, go and sin no more. That's why he says to all of them, if you have, if, let he who has no sin throw the first stone. He's suddenly shifting their hearts and all of a sudden they drop the stones and walk away because Jesus has bent down to the dirt to write anew in the hearts of men. This is the picture of John's gospel. That God Almighty has come down to us and has changed our souls with the with the hand of God, with the finger of God. Jesus rewrites the heart in John chapter 8, the same word used in Luke chapter 20. I mean, Luke chapter 11, verse 20. We've got Ezra is a man for the hour. He's of Aaron's sons. He's a scribe. Ezra has the hand of God on him. And Ezra goes with or to the people with a purpose. He goes with and to the people with a purpose. And I, I put that with and to in there so you would understand something about Jesus. You see, Jesus comes with us in all of our affliction and struggles and toils and worship and all our things. He gathers with us. He is with us. He walks with us. He does things with us. He lives with us. He is personally engaged with us. And yet, at the same time, we need to remember that He comes to us. He is exalted far above us but has come to us. Ezra, if you'll notice, there's a slight distinction as we read about him. He's coming from Babylonia to Israel. He's coming to Jerusalem. And he comes to them with the word to them. There's a beautiful picture here of Jesus coming to you. You see, the people of Israel have set up this temple. They've got the sacrifices going. They've had the Passover. Everything's going great. And then there's this 60-year lull, and they're getting tired. 
And they're starting to fall back into the same things that they were doing before because the Word of God is not living and active among them. And then Ezra comes to them. He comes to them in their system, their broken, flawed practices. He comes to them and He begins to work in them, with them. But He comes to them. Jesus comes to us. Jesus comes to us. Do not say who will go up to bring God down. For I have come to you. This has been the promise since Deuteronomy. When there was the fire on the mountain and Moses went up and said, I, God said to Moses, I have come down to you. Do not say who will go up to bring him down. I have come down to you. Jesus comes to us. He has come to His people to be with His people. He comes to His people with a purpose. He comes to His people with a purpose. So we see Ezra goes to the people with a purpose. And the first purpose is there in verse 10. To teach the law. He comes with a purpose to teach the law. The second one is to distribute and manage funds. We see that in verse 15. In verse 15, uh, Artaxerxes says, And also carry the silver and gold the king's counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people. And the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money you shall be with all diligence buy bulls, rams, lambs, all their grain offerings, all the sacrifices are covered. So Ezra is sent with a purpose, one, to teach the law, two, to administrate funds, to divide funds, to use them for the worship of the king, uh, the, the real king, Jesus, the Lord God Almighty. That's who I was referring to, just so that you don't think it's Artaxerxes. They were worshiping their God, the rightful king, Jesus, the king of all glory. So to appoint, he's also there to appoint magistrates and bring order. There in verse 25, when it says appoint magistrates, um, I think, yeah, your Bible, our Bible's translated magistrate. Appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the law of your God. So he is there to do these three things. As it goes to the people with a purpose to do these things. So he's a man for the hour. Let's review. Ezra's a man for the hour. He's one of Aaron's sons. He's a scribe. He he has the hand of God on him. And Ezra goes to the people with a purpose. With purpose. Now, God's plan is shadowed in Ezra. God's plan is shadowed. In Ezra, we see this in the book of Hebrews, that those things that came before are shadows of the greater things that are to come. And in Ezra, we see Ezra a shadow or a type for Christ, one who is to come later. First, God will write his law on the hearts of his people in the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33 through 34 is quoted again in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 through 18. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 through 18, quotes the same thing. That God, this is the covenant that I will make with them 
on after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. The new covenant changes our hearts. The new covenant changes our hearts where we were striving to be obedient, do things on our own with our own two hands, white knuckling things, trying to make sure that everything goes perfectly. Hear what Jesus does. Jesus bends down to the ground to rewrite your heart that you would be obedient from the heart according to the standard by which you were taught. Romans chapter 6. You would be obedient from the standard by which you were taught. Then he adds, this is more of Hebrews chapter 10. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So he will write the law in their hearts and he will forgive them of all their lawless deeds. The law gets written on their hearts and he forgives them of all their lawless deeds. This is the new covenant. This is what we celebrate every Sunday when we take communion. The new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. This is what we celebrate has happened. This is the life changing reality that Jesus Christ, the Son of God came to earth, became man, fully God, fully man, died on the cross for your sins and rose again that you would have life and Delight abundantly in Him that you would be able to connect and be with God yet again. That Sabbath rest would be restored in our souls. So God's plan is a shadow in Ezra. God writes the law in their hearts. God will give His people new hearts. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God's plan shadowed in Ezra. He's giving them a new heart. He's writing the law in their hearts. And then third, God himself will be our teacher. So in Ezekiel, he promised that he would give us a new heart. In Jeremiah, he promised he would write the law on that heart. And then here in Hebrews chapter 8, we have this reminder, 8 verses 10 through 12. For this is the covenant that I will make in the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That, isn't that a beautiful picture of the church? Isn't that a beautiful picture of the church? That we teach one another, we proclaim, we all know him and we teach one another, we teach one another merely by being together. This is the beautiful picture of the church. Right? So let's there the end of Hebrews chapter ten, I mean chapter eight, verses ten through twelve. Remember, he is merciful to us towards our iniquities, and he remembers our sins no more. He casts them as far as the east is from the west. Now, Ezra is a shadow of what is to come, and Jesus is the substance of what has come. Jesus, the better Ezra. Jesus is the better Ezra. And we're just going to run through these real quick, primarily from the book of Hebrews, looking at Jesus being the better Ezra. First, he came from heaven to earth. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, he came from heaven to earth. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He lives a perfect life in the same chapter, chapter 4, verse 14, verse 14 through 16. He lives a perfect life 
and we can draw near to him. So let's, I'm just going to list them all. Let you see them all right there. Yeah, that's what I have. Um, Jesus comes from heaven to earth in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. He comes down and then it describes him as one who can sympathize with our every weakness. He lives a perfect life and we can draw near to him because of his coming. The second thing to see in Hebrews when we study that book is to see that he is appointed by God, not by lineage, but by oath, not by law. If you go over to, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 7, if you have it in front of you. Um, but if you look at Hebrews chapter 7, he describes here in 7 verse 20 through 22, and it was not without an oath. Jesus' high priesthood was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantee of, or guarantor of a better covenant in verse 22. He is securing salvation in himself because he has an oath from God that does it. He's not a high priest by lineage. He's a high priest because he is the high priest. He's the one. All the others that have had a lineage where they have to point back and go, I'm of Aaron, I'm of Levi, I'm of Asherah, I'm of Amariah, I'm of Phineas. All these guys that were tracing their lineage do not hold a candle to the one high priest who comes from the lineage of Melchizedek. Which isn't the lineage, because Melchizedek is never dying, but eternal. Because Melchizedek is the righteous king of Salem, or the righteous king of heaven. He is, Jesus is appointed by God, not by lineage. Third, Jesus is eternal. And there again in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24, it says, But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The former priests, they died. But he continues forever. Jesus is your high priest Forever, As opposed to Ezra, who comes for several years and teaches the law, Jesus comes, writes the law in your heart, changes your heart, and then lives with you forever. You have eternal security because our high priest, who stands on our behalf, will never die. The refuge that we run to is eternal and permanent. No matter how weak we are, he is constant and faithful and never-ending. Fourth, he is a better tent in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. And in verse 11, it says this. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. It's talking about the tent, right? The tabernacle. And then if you jump to verse 11, there's this great but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He is the greater tent 
the greater, he's the one who enters into the greater tent on our behalf. He's the one who is the greater Ezra. He is the greater temple for us to worship in. He is that which we find life and worship and hope in. He's a better covenant. The new covenant, which we've read over and over already in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 through 12. And in chapter 10, verse 15 through 18, he is the new and better and greater covenant. Jesus is the better Ezra. He is the scribe who has come to us, the scribe, not a scribe. He is the scribe who comes to us, the embodiment of the law, speaks into our hearts, changes who we are, and gives us life and life eternal. And there is no greater joy to be had than this. There is no greater cheers to go up than these. These cheers of worship which we give our God, there's no greater life to be lived than this one in Christ Jesus. Ezra arrives as a picture of Christ in Ezra chapter 7. A great temple is rebuilt, sacrifices are reinstituted, and now the word of God has come to live and dwell among the people of God. Oh, that we would remember this beautiful picture and see what John the disciple says in John chapter 1, that he has made his dwelling place among us. He has come to dwell with us. He has come to be with us. The word of God has come that he may dwell with us. We still need Jesus every moment of every hour. As he writes the law in our hearts, as he refreshes our souls, as he brings to life. That is why the urging in scripture is constantly Christian, that you would stay faithful in the word of God, that you would let it renew and speak to you, that you would let it move in you. Jesus has come. Jesus has come and he has brought with him life and you can see him and know him. Indeed. We see him and know him and delight in him always. Father, we thank you for your word.